I want us to come to chapter 2 now. It says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Now, those of you that have my notes know that I've said in the notes here that the bride speaks of herself. She's not boasting, but compares herself to the lowly and humble flowers of that land. Well, that's nice, all right. And the New Schofield Bible puts it down that she is the one that speaks here. Well, I want to say that I believe that what you have here is not her voice now, but it's the voice of the bridegroom. And it's actually the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. If she's speaking, she's merely speaking of her reflected beauty, which would actually apply to him and to him only. Now, he says here, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Now, here you have the Lord Jesus making a statement that, very frankly, you wouldn't find the sons of men today using. He says, for instance, I'm meek and lowly. Now, you put that in my lips, or your lips, or the lips of the angel Gabriel, and it wouldn't be humility at all. It would be pride. But it is humility from the lips of the Lord Jesus because he stooped in order that he might become meek and lowly. He came down from heaven's glory. And anything beneath that is humility on his part. And he says, you remember, I'm the true shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And that speaks of like of truth and grace And now he says, I'm the rose of Sharon, and I'm the lily of the valleys. Now, these are not, we believe, the words of the bride, but his words. And I feel like that the translators have tried to make it clear that it's the king speaking. It's the Lord Jesus. And you find that in the old English Bibles that it's said, the voice of Christ and the bridegroom In the French and Italian and Portuguese Bibles, why, it's the voice of Christ. And Origen and Theodoret and many of the church fathers applied this to the Lord Jesus here. And I want you to look at this expression. I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Now, these are two very interesting flowers when you look at them for just a moment here. I suppose that amongst all the flowers, the rose has always been, and everywhere today, and I think especially in the East, it is the one that's at the top of the list of all the flowers. And the rose of Sharon was an unusually beautiful flower. The valley of Sharon is that coast valley that goes all the way from Joppa up to Haifa, I've traveled the length and the breadth of it several times, and it's always a wonderful trip to make in any season of the year. You can go in the winter, you can go in the spring or summer, fall, and it's interesting. It's a valley today where you see a great many flowers. I have pictures of flowers I took, especially the poppy, and just fields of them. And then there are a great deal of citrus that's grown there. And as you've probably heard, the finest citrus in the world is grown in Israel, 
Well, that's the valley where you find most of it. And the rose now grows in profusion in that valley. And it is a very beautiful flower that speaks of him. And this is, I think, something quite interesting. The rose, though, still has the thorn on it. There are those today that have been developed that does not have the thorn. But even that beautiful thing, the rose, is a reminder that thorns and thistles with this earth bring forth. I don't think the rose originally had thorns on it. I don't think it was intended to. Now, it's a very wonderful thing here, and it's been expressed by another like this. An ancient author writes, If a king were set over flowers, it would be the rose that should reign over them being the ornament of the earth, the splendor of plants, the eye of flowers, the beauty of the field. Well, here's something that I think is quite interesting. The Lord Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and that which is necessary. Bread is the staff of life. We need it to hold us up, to keep us going. This is one of the necessities of life. And he is that food for the perishing sinner. And thousands have reached up a dying hand in faith, a feeble hand, and have taken the bread, and they've eaten, and they've lived. And he's the true vine. And as the true vine, he gives the glorious, wonderful joy of the Lord. And the Scripture says, "...strong drink is to be given to them that are ready to perish, and wine to such as of heavy heart." And he doesn't give you the alcoholic beverage. He gives you the real joy of the Lord. But notice, this is something different here. I'm the rose of Sharon. He's presenting himself now, not as a necessity, but an object of pure admiration and delight to the children of man. I have a wonderful little book that tells of just the beauties of Christ as the wonderful human being that he really was. And the Lord Jesus Christ is one that we can just behold him. If there is any purity, any beauty, think on these things, any virtue. He's the rose of Sharon. And you remember he said to his own there, And they were walking, I'm sure, through the fields. And he said, Consider the lilies. (laughs) They toil not, neither do they spin. Consider the lilies. Well, I think he'd say to you and me today, Consider the rose of Sharon. And he's that rose. Consider him. And that's the invitation that you have in the Scripture. You remember the writer to the Hebrews has that to say. I want to turn over to that, by the way. In the third chapter of Hebrews, it says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, consider the apostle, high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider him. Consider Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, wonderful picture this is. And here you have not only the green grass that he makes his own set upon, 
lie down upon green grass. But he also has a bouquet of lovely roses for you, red roses. He shed his blood that you and I might have life. Now, not only that, but he says, I'm the lily of the valleys. Now, I do not know, very frankly, just what valley has reference to. The valley of Esdraelon has beautiful flowers in it also. And even down uh, along the coast in that part that's south of Joppa, a lot of beautiful flowers I saw down there. And, very frankly, down in the Jordan Valley, down around the Sea of Galilee, a great many. And what was the lily of the valley? Well, now, here again, there is a question just what is really meant here by the lily of the valley. Apparently, it was the iris. The iris grows wild over there. You see a great many of them. And I'm of the opinion that what you have here is this humble plant, this iris, and also the proud rose. You have the rose of Sharon, and you have the lily of the valley. Now, what a beautiful picture this is, actually, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're told something else here. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Now, close by these lilies, there are a lot of thorns. And we find the lily, the beauty of it, has been made over to the church. Well, this is the way that Bonar expressed it. He says, close by these lilies, there grew several of the thorny shrubs of the desert. But above them rose the lily, spreading out its fresh green leaf as a contrast to the dingy verdure of these prickly shrubs. Like the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. In other words, amongst the daughters, I think of Jerusalem. Why, that's the way that the bride stands out. He is the lily of the valleys. He's pure. He's lovely. He's beautiful. Therefore, his bride and his sister and his spouse is a lily also because she bears the image of his loveliness and reflects it to man. That's what the church is to do today, to reveal in a world filled with thorns and briars and thistles something of the beauty that is here. What a glorious picture this is. Now we continue on because something else quite wonderful is said here. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now we have here the apple tree among the trees of the wood. And that's a picture of Christ now as an apple tree. And he had a goodly shadow. Now you may wonder what kind of a tree that he's talking about. Because actually apples as we know them don't grow in that land. You could grow them. You can grow apples here in Southern California. But very frankly, they're not very good apples. You've got to get up in the cold country to grow apples. Go up in the state of Washington and Oregon, for that matter. Hood River apples and 
apples from around the Yakima Valley. My, they're delicious. But what's he talking about here? Well, actually, they're citron fruit. He's talking about oranges because the shadow of an orange tree. I have three in my yard right here in Pasadena, three orange trees, and they make a good shade tree. And my, the beauty of them and the wonderful sweetness of orange blossoms in the spring. I just go out in my patio and sit down and smell. (laughs) And what a picture. And after all, orange blossoms are used at weddings, are they not? What a picture you have here. Uh, The bride and the bridegroom. What does he do? Is the apple tree among the trees of the wood. So is my beloved among the sons. What a beautiful picture that we have of him here. Now, the orange is a yellow fruit, and I personally think it's beautiful. And the citrus grows in the valley of Sharon, by the way. That's where I saw so much citrus fruit growing in that particular area. And that's where these fine, lovely apples that come from Israel grow. Beautiful oranges, citrus apples, if you please. And it's said to be the finest citrus in the world. And it's always grown there. Actually, citrus was transplanted into California years ago. Didn't grow here naturally. Does now. But it didn't originally. But it did in Palestine. That was the place where it grew. Now, she says, Yeah, I sat down under shadow with great delight, and this fruit was sweet to my taste. And if you notice what the orange tree, it's a shade tree, and the fruit is sweet of it, and it also gives shade. The wood of it's not any good for anything I know, but it certainly is a marvelous tree in other connections. And that's exactly the thing that she's talking about here concerning him. And you think of that. Now, the next time you see an orange, think of Jesus. He is the apple tree, the citron apple. And it speaks of the fact that he not only gives shade, but he also is a shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, but also the sweet fragrance of the orange blossom, and then the sweetness of the fruit of it. It gives you vitamin C. It's good for you. What a picture that we have here, friends, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's keep right on moving here, and I'm beginning to move out now. And she says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Brought me to the banqueting house. You remember, the Lord Jesus gave that parable. He said the invited guests, they didn't show up for this marriage supper. So, I've sent out invitations on the highways and the byways. And he'll bring you into the banqueting house. Bring you in where there's a great spread. It's marvelous food. You talk about smorgasbord. It's on his table today. Everything that can satisfy the human heart is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And today, we find these Christians running around, eating all kinds of scraps, like the prodigal son, They get down sometimes and eat with a pig. Well, my friend, why settle for 
All of this ersatz food. A great many people think if you go through psychology, you find the answer. And others feel like, well, it's a sort of a psychological gyration. You go through that. You solve your problem. You don't solve your problems that way. He's prepared the banquet in house. And on that, you can get food that contains all of the vitamins that you need. Oh, to be satisfied with the Lord Jesus Christ and to revel in him, rejoice in him. I used to enjoy going to banquets. I've been on the banquet circuit so long, friends, that a banquet doesn't excite me anymore, except the banquet that he prepares. And here, right in this book, just think of the banquet that we're having here, feeding upon him. He's the bread of life, but he's also that sweet fragrance, and he's also the shadow, and he's also a flower. What a picture for our enjoyment, just to behold him. I think that When we get to heaven, we're going to spend probably the first million years just bowing before him. It'll take about that long just to come to know him and get acquainted with him. Paul says that I might know him. That was the ambition of his life. Now, to be saved by grace doesn't mean, therefore, to go sit in the corner. Why, my friend, you'll be busier than you've ever been before. Paul says... Well, I was willing to go to Damascus under the law and get rid of these Christians. But when I met Jesus Christ, I was willing to go to the end of the world to take his message. You don't work if you're a child of God today, saved by grace. Well, my friend, it gives you an enthusiasm and excitement and a joy that you've never had before. He brought me into the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. And you're invited to the banquet. He sent out the invitation. Now, we are seeing in all of this a glorious, wonderful spiritual picture of not only the church and Christ, but the church is his bride, will be his bride, and that this also reveals the personal relationship that you and I can have with the Lord Jesus. Now, will you notice, he brought me into the banqueting house. Now, the banqueting house, I think, looks forward to that day when we are going to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You and I'll be there, and be there by the grace of God. I believe that is the picture that is here. That's when full satisfaction will be made. But I don't know about you, but he's brought me to the table of salvation, and he's brought me to the table of fellowship, and he prepareth the table before me of the Word of God here in this little Song of Solomon, and he tells me to eat and to be full. So he brought me into the banqueting house, and he brings me to the Lord's table, He brings me to a table of good things and how good he is, how gracious he is, how wonderful he is. And we can do nothing but sing praises unto him. Now, may I say that as we move back, we find out that when he was born, that he brought joy unspeakable to a group of folk. 
That was Simeon and Anna yonder in the temple. They were waiting for him. They had great hope that he'd come in their lifetime. Well, one day Joseph and Mary brought the little boy Jesus in. And my, what a banquet in the house that was for those two who had looked for the salvation of the Lord. And you will remember it was a wonderful banqueting house that God brought Joseph and Mary to when word was brought to her that she would conceive and bear this child. You remember she was David's great, great, great granddaughter. And she said, He hath filled the hungry with good things. And the son of David, Solomon, had already said, He hath brought me into the banqueting house. What a picture that we have here. And you remember that that was the prayer at the beginning of this girl, draw me and we'll run. Oh, the ecstasy and the excitement, but we can't take it in unless he draws us, unless he lifts us up, unless the Spirit of God gives us the ability to have a discernment and to have our eyes open to behold him in all of his beauty and all of his glory. Now, we are told here, his banner over me was love. And it's still floating over us today. It's the banner of conquest. In that day, all conquering armies carried a banner with them. And in that particular time, it was the Roman army. The Son of God still goes forth to war. That is, it's a battle today for the souls of men. I remember that I resisted him, and I didn't want to come. I never shall forget the excuses I made for not going to a young people's conference. I thought it was a bunch of sissies that went there, and I didn't want to go with that crowd, and I wasn't interested in it. But, you know, he opened up the way, and... First thing I knew, I was there. And before I knew it, I'd made a decision in my heart that was for him. His banner over me has been a banner of conquest. And then it's a banner also of protection. And you will remember that he came into this world, and the Father testified, he's my beloved son. And they couldn't touch him until his hour came. And at that time, they took him and crucified him. And it was something that was terrible. He cried out in that hour, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then they thought since God had forsaken him, that he was forsaken, that they could do as they pleased with him. Well, they could cry out, Let God deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Well, God delighted in him. God had said, he's my only begotten son. I'm well pleased in him. And so he raised him from the dead. He delivered him from death. And now there is that banner of salvation and protection over those that are his. And he says, the peace of God that passeth understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It'll be on guard duty. It will protect you. Then this is a banner of enlistment. You can enlist today as a soldier. He has a volunteer army. He says, if you love me, why, keep my commandments. 
And somebody says, I don't love him. He said, forget them. I want you to enlist. And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. And you can come and enlist. But it's a volunteer army. What a picture that we have here. There's so many other things that are so wonderful here. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with oranges, for I'm sick of love. Now, the Spirit of God has brought the saved soul into a personal relationship with Christ that is satisfying. And again, I repeat, God is satisfied with Jesus and what he did for you. Are you satisfied? Do you find joy and satisfaction and delight in the person of Christ? Spend time in the pages of this little book, the little book that Moody spent time in, McCheney spent time in, and the great men of God down through the ages have spent time in this little book. And I would say I've spent too little time in this book, but it's become very meaningful to me today. And there is a wonderful satisfaction that you find here, a satisfaction that is paradoxical. It makes you sick. It is so satisfying. It's so thrilling. I remember hearing the man I succeeded in Nashville, Tennessee, a great man of God. And he told me one day, I went out to see him. I always loved to visit with him. He Never talked to that man. He didn't have something new to tell you about the Word of God. And he said to me, he said, Vernon, the other night I was lying in bed, and I thought how wonderful Christ is. And he says, it just seemed to me that there was glory all around my bed. And he says, don't misunderstand. I'm not seeing things. But he said, it was so wonderful to contemplate the person of Christ till finally my body was so worked up, and I became so worked up I couldn't go to sleep. And finally I cried out to God. I said, Oh, Lord, turn off the glory. This old body of mine can't stand any more of it. <laughs> the experience of Paul caught up to the third heaven. Oh, how wonderful it is. Many of us today, we haven't even gotten our foot in the door yet. We know so little about what it is to have this kind of fellowship with him today. Now, of course, it'll find its final fulfillment when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Erskine has said so many wonderful things. He's expressed it like this. The love, the love that I bestow, works wonders in the soul. For when I'm whole, it makes me sick. When sick, it makes me whole. I'm overcome, I faint, I fail, till love shall love relieve. More love divine the wound can heal, which love divine did give. More of the joy that makes me faint would give me present ease. If more should kill me, I'm content to die of that disease. What a marvelous, wonderful thing. This is. What a paradox. This wonderful love of God. Oh, how glorious the satisfaction you can find in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now his left hand is under my head. He's able, you see, to save us to the utmost. And his right hand doth embrace me. He can bring you to a place of service, not only keep you from temptation. He's able to do that. But he's got his hands busy today in trying to protect you and me down here. Not just trying, he is able to do that. And now the bride says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rows and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor wake my love till he please. Now, my friend, what is it that'll wake him up? What is it that would stir him up in his fellowship with you? It's the sin in my life, my waywardness. And we're going to come to that a little later on in this chapter, but don't stir him up, friends, today. Not only to be satisfied with him, but that he might be satisfied with us today. Now we've come into the second song that is here. And this is a wonderful song because apparently Solomon had been away on a trip. And now he comes home. And she's looked forward in anticipation to his coming. She's excited about it. What a wonderful Glorious thing it is to see the excitement and ecstatic condition of the bride as she looks forward to the coming of the bridegroom. Now, this is, we'll find its final fulfillment, I think, in the anticipation of the church for the coming of Christ to take the church out of the world. And you'll notice that it begins now like this. The voice of my beloved. (laughs) And that's the thing that she says. It's the voice of my beloved. You remember what the Lord Jesus said about this very same thing here? He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life. My sheep hear my voice. It's the voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. And have you ever noticed that at the rapture, the first thing that you have is the voice of the Son of God? And may I say that his coming to the earth is not the sound of a voice, but of a tremendous glory sight. In other words... The appeal at the raptures to the ear. The appeal at his revelation when he comes to the earth is to the eye that he'll come. Then they shall see a son of man coming in the clouds of glory. They'll see it then. But now they are to hear. You see, the church are made up of people who heard something. We heard about it. We heard of his death and burial and resurrection. We trusted him. We listened to him today. So when he comes, we're going to know his voice. He says, my sheep, they hear me. They hear my voice. That means they hear with a knowledge of knowing who I am. And so Paul puts it like this, the Lord himself. And that means he's coming personal. He's not sending angels to gather the elect here. That's when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. But when he takes his church out of the world, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with what? With a shout, 
the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and all of that's his voice. His voice will be like an archangel. It'll be like a trumpet when he comes. And first of all, what a picture we have of the rapture. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Now, I like that. It's poetic language. Of course it is. This is a song, my friend, and God is trying to speak to us in it here. And what a wonderful thing. He's leaping upon the mountains. He's skipping upon the hills. Now, there's a great deal said about the feet of Jesus. I have a series of messages that I ran several years ago on the members of the body of Christ. I spoke of the eyes of Jesus. I spoke of the lips of Jesus. Eyes that were stained with tears, by the way. And I spoke of the hands of Jesus. And I spoke of the feet of Jesus. And the prophet had said he'll make his feet like those of hinds' feet. The psalmist speaks of him as the hind of the morning. And that is Ijaleth Shehar. And that is the title of the 22nd Psalm. And that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of his sorrow. And you have in that psalm the cross of Christ, his death upon the cross. And it's a picture of the hind of the morning. What a picture. All night long, the dogs have been following the hind. The row are a young heart. And they've torn at his flesh. They've attempted to destroy him. But now the sun has come up. And what do you have? There is the hind of the morning standing on the mountain peak. He escaped it all. He's skipping upon the hills. He's coming back, friends. And he's leaping upon the mountains. I can't think of a more wonderful poetic picture than this. And what a picture it is. And may I quote Erskine again? He says, When manifold obstructions met, my willing Savior made a stepping stone of every let that in his way was laid. He took stumbling blocks and he made them into stepping stones. And he made a way for us. And he is the way. And today, why, here we have the picture of his coming again. Now, will you notice? He is like a roe or a young heart. Now he's drawing closer. And the voice of my beloved sounds over the rocks and rising grounds, o'er hills of guilt and seas of grief, he leaps, he flies to my relief. Watts wrote that. And today, you and I have access to him. Now, will you notice we're told something else. He says, Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. And today, he's behind the wall. (laughs) He's gone yonder to God's right hand. I'm way down here today. It's like it was when he went to the mountain to pray after he fed the 5,000 and his own were down there on the little sea of Galilee in a storm. That's where I am today. And he's up yonder at God's right hand. He's on the other side of the wall, friends. 
and everything under the sun is trying to keep me from him, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And today he still says, as he said to Zacchaeus, "'Come down, today I must abide at thy house.'" He says that to you. He says that to me. I want to come in with you. And if you'll go in with that old publican and fellowship with him, I think you'll come into where you are. You just invite him in. And this is the one that could be said in that day, There standeth one in the midst of you whom ye know not. And I knew him not. John the Baptist made that statement. The world doesn't know him. He's behind a wall today, the wall of indifference the wall of rebellion against God, the wall of sin today. What a picture. And my beloved spoke, and he said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Why, we're told husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it because he's going to come and take her out of this world how he's going to present it to himself, a church that he's purified. Believe me, the church needs it. All of us believers need it. He's going to sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the Word. It's the reason we have this Bible study, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish, And he says, now rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Lo, the winter's past. It's cold down here in this world. The rain is over and gone. The storm has now abated. The storms of life. You're having a hard time today, Christian friend? He said you would in the world. You're going to have trouble, he said. And we have trouble in the world. If you're not having trouble... You don't belong to him, because that's one of the marks of a child of God. You're having trouble in the world, but now it's over. And it's going to be over when he comes, wiping away every tear, healing every broken heart, and every sorrow has now vanished away, and we brought into his presence. The winter's past, the rain is over and gone, and the flowers appear on the earth. There are going to be a lot of flowers in heaven in the new Jerusalem. I want to grow camellias there myself. Someone gave me recently, I'm told, camellias that are valued at about $500. Very fine hybrid types. I have raised them before, but I never had wonderful ones like I've got now. And I want to continue to raise them up there. Heaven is a place of flowers. The flowers appear now on the earth and down here on the earth. It's going to be different. Oh, what a glorious, wonderful picture we have. Now, the time of the singing of the birds is come. Now, that's another very lovely expression, by the way. The time of the singing of the birds is come. And what we have here is the fact that there's going to be a great deal of singing in heaven. There's going to be a great deal of singing when we come into his presence. And have you ever noticed that there is a great deal of singing that opens, actually, the Gospels? Dr. Luke is really the one that begins farther back in the story than any of the others begin of the four Gospels. 
And have you ever noticed this song? So when we went through that, I called attention to them. There are the songs of Zacharias. There's the song of Mary. It's the song of Elizabeth. And there's the song of Anna. There's the song of Simeon. And there are a lot of songs there. And they sang them at his birth. And the church began singing. And the joy of these people is what called attention to them in the Roman world. And we someday will get in his presence and we're told, Oh, sing a new song to the Lord, for he hath done wondrous things. Well, I can't sing it now, but I'm going to then, because I've got a new body that I'm going to get. And here we're told that there will be the flowers in the earth, and oh, what a joyful gratitude should be in our hearts for his salvation. And it ought to manifest itself in a song in our heart. Now, it may not come out very well when we sing it, but King Will Marish wrote this little jingle. He says, O sing unto this glittering, glorious King. O praise his name, let every living thing. Let heart and voice like bells of silver ring the comfort that this day did bring. He put a song in our heart. And the time of the singing in some of the older Bibles has been rendered the time of pruning is come. You see, he prunes the vines. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus said that he was going to do. You remember over in the Gospel of John, it's in the 15th chapter there. And he says here, I am the genuine vine. My father, he is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. That is, he prunes it. And so the time of pruning has come. You and I are living in the time of pruning. The time of singing is ahead of us. What a picture that we have here. And then we're told the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Now, the turtle dove is the dove that we think of today. I saw them in that land there. They look very similar to our doves here, only I think they're somewhat smaller. And that dove has always been the emblem of peace. And you remember the reason for it, why the dove, went out and took that olive leaf and brought it back to Noah. And that spoke of peace. The judgment was over. And the turtle dove speaks to us today that you and I have a salvation that's complete. The judgment is past. How? Well, because he bore it for us. He has endured it. I'm saved today. I can say that. Not because of who I am, but because of what Christ did. And this morning, friends, your sins are either on you or they're on Christ. Now, if they're on you, you are yet to come up for judgment. Now, if you've trusted Christ, he bore them for you. And by faith, you appropriate the salvation. Therefore, that judgment is past. And the turtle dove that we have here speaks of the peace that he's made. And that's the reason that not just the... Few of the saints will go out at the rapture. There are some people believe only the super-duper saints will go out. And I've known some of those people in my day 
And I never met one of them in my life that didn't think he was going out at the rapture. They never were quite sure about me, but they sure were sure about themselves. And I think that ministers to pride. They assume they're super-dupers. Well, I'm going out, not because of being a super-duper, but because he made peace by the blood of his cross, and I have forgiveness of sins. Turtle Dove speaks of that here at this time. And this is the wonderful picture, actually, that we have of the fact that we have a new day coming up, the turtle dove in the morning. I hear turtle doves up where I live early of the morning. They're the first bird that apparently gets up in the morning. They speak of a new day that is coming. And what a wonderful picture you have here. And it speaks of the fact that the legal wintry state is gone. The mists are fled. The spring comes on. The sacred turtle dove we hear proclaim the new, the joyful year. And when we hear Christ Jesus say, Rise up, my love, and come away, our hearts would fain outfly the wind and leave all earthly joys behind. Watts wrote that. And I think he spent a great deal of time in the Song of Solomon, by the way, just as we're spending maybe a little too much time here. But this is too wonderful to leave right now. Now he says, "...the fig tree putteth forth her green figs." I think the fig tree speaks of Israel. And he says, "...when you see the fig tree putting out its leaves, you'll know summer's nigh. And the vines with the tender grape give a good smell." It's springtime, you see. Now, it'll be springtime because he says, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And we're told that the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we which are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now we have this very marvelous thing that is said here, O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret of the stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Because he's to make us that kind of a church, you see, someday. Now, this is a very beautiful, glorious phrase he uses here. Oh, my dove. And he speaks of the dove here that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place are the secret of the stars. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. And this is the one that he has made like that. And we are told here that the cry is, O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove under the multitude of the wicked. And he will not. Why? Because the thing that he did was to hide her in the cleft of the rock. 
Now, that cleft of the rock, it speaks of Christ because he is the rock on which the church is built. And he bore the judgment. We rest upon him. And that should bring today not only satisfaction, it should bring security to us. It should bring the assurance of our salvation. But if you're on the rock today, you may not have the assurance. But if you're on the rock, you're safe. It's like the little Scotch lady. She was boasting of her salvation. And someone says, why, you act as if you're safe and secure on the rock. Well, she says, I am. But she says, there's one thing sure. I do tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles unto me. We are on the rock today, and he's the one that is hidden us in the clefts of the rock. Now, again, may I come and say that the dove is also the emblem that the Holy Spirit used to speak really of himself. He came like a dove upon Christ, and it speaks of the fact that you and I are God's child today, and the evidence of it is that we have the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And then we are told here that saints are likened to doves because of their simplicity and their gentleness. He says, "...be ye wise as serpents, but harmless as doves." I suspect a dove is a pretty stupid bird the other day accidentally and driving along, I hit a dove. The crazy dove stood there in the highway, didn't even move until I got right on him. I guess he thought he could make it, but he didn't make it at all. And I regretted doing that. But I said, you stupid little bird for staying like you did. Well, we not only need to be as harmless as doves, we better be wise as serpents in this world we're in today. We'll get run over also. And so a dove is a good picture for us. And a dove has a certain beauty about it. I think they're a very beautiful bird in many ways. And then they're used so much as a symbol of peace. And they carry messages of peace and goodwill for God. And then they speak of timidity. A dove is not a very forward-type bird. We're told in Scripture, it's mentioned about the trembling like a dove out of the land of Egypt. And I've seen doves down there in the land of Egypt. But the wonderful and glorious picture here is the hiding place. It's the place where we've been put in the cleft of the rock. And that rock is Christ, and he was wounded for us. And as someone has said, I got in the heart of Christ through a spear wound. And Top Lady's wonderful hymn is still true, and it's based on this. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide 
myself in thee. What a picture we have there. Now, there's one other verse that I'm going to emphasize here, and then we're going to take off, friends. Verse 15, "...take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes." Now, that's a very interesting picture, by the way. You see, they could put up a fence, a wall, that would keep out the big foxes. But those little fellows, they can sneak through, you see. And they are the ones that got in, and always they would destroy the grapes, you see, tear up the grapevines. And we are told today, I think it has a message for us, we better beware of the the little foxes. The Lord Jesus, you remember, gave his ones a warning about them, that you watch out for them. He said to his own, He that hath two coats, let him give to him that hath none. Exact no more than is appointed you. Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Repent and bring fruits meet for repentance. And he also spoke of the fact that these were enemies around, old generation of vipers. He could speak to the religious rulers. And then when they brought word to him that Herod was looking for him, he says, you go tell that old fox. Herod had been a young fox one time and had caused trouble, a lot of trouble. John the Baptist pointed his finger at him and said, you have no right to have another man's wife. And preacher doesn't make himself popular when he says a thing like that. And Herod took his head off. I tell you, and our Lord Jesus said, You go tell that old fox, the day I work and tomorrow and the next day, but he'll have nothing to do with it. May I say to you, we're to beware of the old foxes, but it's the young foxes that get in and cause the trouble today. Frankly, I think in the church there are these little foxes. It's these little sins that spoil the church, spoil a Christian's life. There are the little sins of omission today. James, you remember, says in James 4:17 that he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. Uh, what is it? He says it's sin. And that's a sin of omission. How many folks say today, you know, I ought to be doing something for God, and they see something that they should do, and they don't do it? Oh, how many people have sinned in that connection? And we need to recognize the fact that the Lord Jesus went about doing good. (laughs) Somebody says that Jesus went about doing good, and the thing troubles me. I'm just satisfied about just going about, probably doing nothing. Sin of omission today. Oh, how many folk have said, I intended to write you, but I didn't write you? Little thing. How many folk said, oh, I intended to do something for missions, and I forgot to do it? Sins of omission. These little foxes, friends, they wreck a vineyard any time. And How many times have we not prayed for somebody? We should have prayed for them. You remember that Samuel could say, God forbid that I not sin against you by failing to pray for you. And how many of you pray for those you should pray for? Then there's another sin of commission. 
That is something that Paul talked about over in the epistle to the Romans, over in the 14th chapter at verse 23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And this business of taking a step and taking it on our own and trying to call it faith, and we know it's not faith. We just want to have our way. That's an awful sin, I think, but it's a little fox that gets in and spoils the work of God today. Oh, how many people lean on that very lame and broken reed and try to hold themselves up and maintain a pious attitude. I'm doing this because God is leading, and you know that he's not leading you at all. That which is not a faith, it's sin for a child of God. And then there's another sin. It's a little one. Oh, but this is a sin that you see among God's people, and that is having respect of persons. And believe me, James, he lowers the boom on those who do that. Will you listen to him? In James, the second chapter, verse 9, But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. How many times? I've had this happen to me. I went into a certain church just to visit. Didn't want to be recognized. I wanted to hear the preacher. And I went in, and the usher was absolutely insulting to me. He said to me, You wait right here. And then he came back and says, well, I don't have a seat. He said, you'll have to stand here in the back. He looked for a moment. He said, oh, you're Dr. McGee, as if that would make any difference. And he said, I'll get you a chair and let you sit right here. May I say to you, respect of persons. How tragic it is to see in some churches today some rich man acknowledged in the service and some poor man that probably is more godly than the rich man, why, he's absolutely ignored. And those little foxes, they really wreck God's work today. And, you know, there's a sin of not giving enough to God. And somebody says, well, you would mention that. Well, I sure would. How many people say, were the whole realm of nature mine? They sing that, and they said, and that were a present far too small. And then when the offering basket is passed, they put 25 cents in it. And then how many of us lie when we sing some of these songs? We sing, I give it all to the Lord. May I say we don't mean it, do we? Oh, my friend, it's the little foxes that are destroying a lot of grapes today. Now, we've come to verse 16 of chapter 2 in the Song of Solomon. And we'll gather momentum, as you can well see. Here we have this very wonderful, wonderful statement, verse 16, and we mustn't run away from it. it. says, My beloved is mine, and I'm his. He feedeth among the lilies. Now, this follows close after this section where we called attention to the fact that it speaks of the rapture of Christ for the church. That is an interpretation and an application we can make to our own hearts and lives. And this is a song. It's a folk song. It's poetry, lovely poetry. And in the highest spiritual state, it speaks of the relationship of the Lord Jesus to the believer. 
Now, you don't reach a higher plane anywhere in the Bible than right here. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Now, this is what he meant when he probably gave the most profound theological statement, and it's very simple, seven simple words, I in you and ye in me. That's what he's talking about. My beloved is mine. It's what the bride says. And I am his. The Lord Jesus said, down here, I took your place. I'm in you. I took your place when I died on the cross. And now, down here, you are to show forth the life of Christ down here. And you can only do it, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're in him up there, seated in the heavens, accepted in the Beloved, joined to him, risen with Christ. And if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. This is a very wonderful statement. And like a lady said, she tells him now every morning she loves him. Why don't you begin that? You're a child of God. My beloved is mine. I'm his. And that means everything that Christ is has been made over to us. You and I live in a day when we may not have very much of this world's goods, but we're rich. And this is the thing that we find that his marvelous, wonderful, infinite grace, it makes us rich. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, at verse 21, he says, Therefore let no man glory in man. Don't glory in Paul or Paulus or Cephas. Don't glory in men today, individuals. Today, the important thing, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ, and Christ is God. You see, we belong to Christ, and he's ours today. He belongs to us. He belongs to me. He's my Savior today. The Lord is my shepherd. We ought to draw very close to him and appropriate some of these glorious, wonderful spiritual blessings that are ours. And it's a high level of spiritual life when you and I get to the place and can say, My beloved is mine, and I am his, and he feedeth among the lilies. Now, what a beautiful picture that is. It speaks of a beautiful place. He feedeth among the lilies. A flower-strewn couch that he sits or reclines at his table. It speaks of satisfaction, speaks of fellowship, speaks of joy. It speaks of everything is so wonderful that the world's after down here. The world's after a good time. The world wants to live it up. Well, let's have a good time and live it up and sit at Christ's table and rejoice in him. He's mine. He belongs to me, and I belong to him. This is a high level. I'm afraid that many of us cannot attain unto it. And therefore, 
we have to cry out, as the bride did here, draw me, (laughs) draw me. That's the only way I'm going to make it, because we'll run after you. But we can't run. We can't run the race that sets before us until we not only see Jesus, but that we have his power in our lives. Now, this is until the day break and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart from the mountains of Bethar. Now, you remember we saw him in that bright morning back here. There he is standing on the mountain peak. He's triumphed because all during the night, the hunters and the dogs, they were leaping at him, biting, and how fierce, how terrible they were seeking his life. But he triumphed over it all. He went down through the door of death, but he came up through the door of resurrection. And now, in light of that, we are living in a dark night. And so until the day break, let the redemption that we have in Christ, let all that he's done for us, let it become meaningful to you and feast on that, rest upon that. Let that be the comfort for the dark night. Let that be the pillar for your head when you're restless. How tremendous this is. Now we come to chapter 3, but we're still in this second song. And I would say it's the second stanza, too, that we come to. And the reason I said that, I thought probably this experience that we had of him coming to her, the voice of my beloved, could have been a dream, because as we continue on, we read this, "...by night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets, and in the broadways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not." Now, the very interesting thing here is that we actually have come to another section and another scene altogether that we've had before. You remember that it's in two sections, first up in the hill country of Ephraim. And here is a family. They are a family that they're tenant farmers. We used to call them croppers down in Georgia, and they're sharecroppers. And they were the ones that tended this vineyard, and they had sheep. And one day a shepherd appeared, and this Shulamite girl, one of the girls in the family, she had to take care of the sheep in the vineyard. She worked so hard she didn't take care of herself, but she had a natural beauty. And this shepherd fell in love with her, and she fell in love with him. And then he said he's going away, but coming back and... He didn't come back for a long time. One day it is announced King Solomon was coming along, and she paid no attention because who was King Solomon? As far as she is concerned, she didn't know him. But then somebody came to her and said, King Solomon wanted to see her. And when she was brought into his presence, it was her shepherd. (laughs) It was the one that had said he would come, and he now has come. Now he takes her away to his palace in Jerusalem. And the scene is there. And this scene is there. And now King Solomon is busy. He's king. He's out, probably 
on king's business in the land. And as he visits around, why, she's left alone there. And finally, why, knowing he was out, why, she got up and went out looking for him. It's quite interesting today, the church, I'm of the opinion, for the most part, and I don't mean just the organized church, I mean believers as a whole, are largely reclining today and doing nothing, practically nothing, to getting the Word of God out. And my friend, he's out today sowing the seed of the Word of God. He's out today trying to get the Word out and wake up a sleepy church. And so this one, she gets up and starts looking for him. And the message that I see here is a great message. If you're going to have fellowship with Christ... It's wonderful to sit with Mary at Jesus' feet. But if you're going to stay around those feet, you're going to find they're going to do a lot of walking. And you'll find that you may be busy in the kitchen with Martha uh, with the pots and the pans. Or you may find yourself busy out yonder on the hillside looking for a sheep. And I heard recently of a church that just in a very dogmatic and cold way, put a member out because a rumor was circulating that he had been dishonest. Well, I think they certainly should have investigated. And I made the inquiry. I said, did somebody go and try to get the lost sheep and bring him back? They said, of course not. He's dishonest. Well, my friend, that's the sheep we need to get back in the fold. I'm afraid that the attitude today in many of our fundamental churches, we're in bed. We're not going to get our feet dirty, and we're going to find out that was the condition of this bride just a little later on. She came to the place. Imagine this girl raised out yonder in the country, kept sheep, took care of a vineyard. Now she's going to loll in bed all morning. May I say to you, I'm afraid the church is in that position today. My friend, let's get out of bed and let's get to work today. Let's get the Word out. And if you're going to have fellowship with him, he can't spend all the time sitting in his feet. There is a time when somebody's going to have to fix a meal back there with Martha in the kitchen. And therefore, I think this is a tremendous thing. Now she went out through the city looking for him. She's lost contact, you see, because of this attitude. And now we read the watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth. And now she's out giving a witness. And that's what she should be doing. It was but a little that I passed from him, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I'd brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. In other words, she went right back to the place where she had been born. And many of us need to get back to that first love. You remember when we first were converted and first came to Christ and how much he meant to us. Now she says, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. And in other words, she now has come to a place where she's witness, and now there is restored that wonderful 
fellowship with him. Will you notice we come now actually to the third canticle. This is the third song, and it begins at verse 6. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all powders of the merchant? And this is a picture, of course, of Solomon as he rode in state throughout his kingdom. And the glory that was Solomon was really something. We're going to get a little description of it here in just a moment. And what we have here is a picture, I think, ought to be of the church today as we are to go through this world as witnesses. And as witnesses, we are also a new man in Christ. We're also an engaged person on the way to meet a bridegroom. And we also are good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And we should move like this through the world. There should be that perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. How wonderful the Lord Jesus is. The myrrh speaks of his death. The frankincense speaks of his life. And both were sweet indeed. Both were glorious. We're going to call attention to that again, I think probably next time. It says, Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Now, this is the couch that he sat upon at mealtime, at that round table where those were gathered around him that were his intimates, where the bride sat with him or reclined with him. But notice, they are living in days of danger. Three score valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. Why are they there? They are there for protection. They are the palace guard. They are the secret service that have charge of his person to watch over him. And may I say to you today, I think that the time has come for us to say that we believe today in the deity of Jesus Christ, that he was God manifest in the flesh, and that we reject the teaching of Jesus Christ superstar. We reject the teaching of liberalism. We reject anything that make him just a human Jesus. He's God manifest in the flesh. That's the picture that we have of him. And they all hold swords. And the sword is the word of God, remember, being expert in war. And we ought to know how to use the word of God. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. We need the word of God. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. And that's what good soldiers of Jesus Christ have. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. Now look at this. Out of the cedars of Lebanon, he made the pillars thereof silver, the bottom thereof of gold. Imagine the floor made of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. What beauty there was, but also what tremendous emotion and love that you have displayed here. Therefore, go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, it says his mother crowned him. Well, you want to read the story? David didn't want to crown him. 
fact of the matter is, there was another son of David that was carrying on a better strategy to try to get to the throne himself. He wanted to run for king and become king. And David wasn't doing anything about it. And the reason, his favorite son, Absalom, had been killed. And he didn't seem to have too much heart for Solomon. And so Nathan came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, said, we better get busy because this other boy may become king. And so she went with Nathan to King David. And then King David said, well, bring him in. We'll make him king. And that's when this boy Solomon was made king. And I like the way that it's stated here. His mother crowned him. It was his mother that was interested in him. And it was his mother, not actually David, though he is David's son here. Now, it says, Behold King Solomon. Well, this is a picture of Christ. Behold him. Behold him in his birth. Behold him in his life. Behold him in his death. Behold him in his resurrection. Behold him in his glory. And behold him as the one who's coming. My friendly solution to the problems of life are found in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't like the expression, Jesus is the answer, or Christ is the answer. I want to know what the question is. And you tell me what the question is, and then the Lord Jesus will furnish you the answer. Now, as we come to chapter 4 here of the Song of Solomon, he says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Now, this entire chapter is the song of the bridegroom. And this was Solomon's love for this girl that he'd met up in the hill country. Brought her to town, as it were. I guess she had shoes on for the first time. And now wearing lovely dresses, sitting at the table of Solomon. What a privilege she had. And she's rejoicing in it. Now, we today, as believers, as we read this, we see in it that what the Spirit of God was doing was trying to show to us Christ's love for us. And we see in that a very wonderful and personal relationship. Now, I think that you find in this chapter the love of Christ actually for his church today. And his love for the individual believers. This is the love song of the bridegroom, or the love song of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that is quite obvious, that that is the thing that he has in mind here, for the very simple reason that if you look, for instance, at verse 7, he's speaking now to the bride, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Well, is this Christ speaking of the church and of each believer speaking to you and to me? Yes. Well, that means then we're going to have to get perfect, does it not? Oh, no. Let's turn over to Ephesians, that familiar passage. I've already quoted it several times, but he says here, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, he's already cleansed us by the blood. And through his sacrifice, we have the forgiveness of sins. 
so that there's no charge brought against us. But he's going to sanctify us too and cleanse us. How? Well, with the word of God, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. Why? Because he will be the one that will make the church without spot or wrinkle. We'll be seen in Christ or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It shall be holy and without blemish. And now he can look at the church and say, Thou art all fair, my love. There's no spot in thee. Why? Because he removed the spot as far as the church is concerned and as far as the believer is concerned. Now, let me just lift out several things in this chapter because from now on, I'm having to move a little faster. I gained a little momentum last time, and we'll pick up a little again today. And I trust that you will go through the rest of this marvelous book. Spend time with verses like this. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to your heart. And ask the Spirit of God to make it real to you. Verse 1 of chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now you will find here a very minute description of this girl. I mean, it describes the parts of her body, if you please. And after all, in marriage, there are two extreme viewpoints, I think, today. One is that the emphasis is put upon sex, and the other emphasis is that there's no emphasis put on sex, that it's a high, holy state that sex doesn't become involved, and then the others are treated like the animals, that we're to live like animals. Well, between those two extreme viewpoints is marriage. And it's when the bridegroom holds the bride in his arms, that's when the love, the physical love, is consummated. Now, here you have that description. And again, it's a minute description. Every young fellow has looked into the eyes of some girl and told her what beautiful eyes that she has. I'm sure that we never speak of other members of the body quite like that. I told my wife when I met her, she was a young school teacher, and she had black hair, black as a raven's wing, and dark brown eyes. Now, today, there's some gray in that hair. But back yonder, oh, I want to tell you, I thought it was beautiful, you see. Now, I told her what beautiful hair you have and eyes. I never told her what beautiful big toes that she's got, because I really don't think she's got beautiful big toes. But nevertheless, here is a minute description, and it reveals the fact that today the Lord Jesus Christ not only, my friend, loves you, but the Lord Jesus knows you. Why don't you quit kidding yourself? (laughs) You're not kidding him at all. And that means you can just go to him and tell him everything that's in your heart. No use trying to cover up. No use trying to use subterfuge. 
No use trying to beat around the bush. You can tell him everything that's on your heart. Tell him all about your weakness. Tell him about that sin. Tell him about the things that are in your heart and life. And that's the way to deal with these things. I noticed today there's a lot of this gimmickry, and my, how popular it is. People pay money to try to get answers to questions. How do I get rid of an inferiority complex? I have news for you. You don't get rid of it. <laughs> the Lord Jesus, 1,900 years ago, is the only one that has an answer to that. And as a psychologist told me, a wonderful Christian man out at USC here in Southern California years ago, he said to me, you can't get rid of that inferiority complex as we psychologists can shift it from one place to another. But the only place you get rid of it is at the cross of Christ. And I'm not sure that a lot of people ought to get rid of the inferiority complex. And I think you ought to have it there until you come to Christ. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless till we come to him. And then there are these questions that you hear today. How can I get rid of an inferiority complex? Well, my friend, I have an answer for you. You don't get rid of that inferiority complex. It's a good thing to have. I'm tired of meeting arrogant, proud Christians today. I wish some of them had a feeling of inferiority. I'd do them good. May I say to you, you don't get rid of it. You rejoice in Christ. I can do all things in Christ that strengtheneth me. Now, friends, none of this gimmickry today, none of these little rules that are being given, that's not the solution. Oh, I know. It'll give you temporary relief. Well, why don't you take an aspirin tablet? And they cost less than some of these things are costing today. And then someone says, how can I get rid of a bad habit? And I just go and confess, and then I'm back doing it again. Well, let me say to you, he's rich in mercy. <laughs> rich in mercy. I'm confident that for years I went to him a hundred, oh, I must have gone two or three hundred times to tell him about something. And you know, he was rich in mercy. And that means he's got a whole lot of it. And it was wonderful to go to him, and yet failure after failure. And you know what? When the time came, he gave the victory in his way. And not by some little gimmickry today that men have worked out, because our Lord moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And he doesn't always follow your little rule or man's little rule. And you have this wonderful thing. Verse 6, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I'll get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, that's the place we need to go for the solution to our problems. The mountain of myrrh is the cross of Christ. Myrrh speaks of his death. And may I say to you, that's where you're going to find comfort today and salvation and help and hope, and to the hill of frankincense. Now, that's his life, not just his earthly life, because we know him no longer after the flesh, Paul says, but we know him now as the glorified Christ and the frankincense. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." 
And what a wonderful, glorious picture that we have here of him. And this is the solution to your problems. That, my friend, is the reason that I keep saying the answer is in the Word of God. It's ignorance of the Word of God that a great many folk are trading on and taking advantage of. And because they know so little, they come up with all kinds of solutions today and not have a broad knowledge of the Word of God. And if you just get into the Word of God and get acquainted with Jesus Christ and sit down at this big round table that we've seen in the Song of Solomon and feast with him and find satisfaction and joy in him. Now, you don't realize, and I don't either for that matter, really how much he loves us today. Will you listen to this? Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart and one of thine eyes with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Now, that's verses 9 and 10. And here he is speaking of the bride. He's speaking of believers. He's speaking of his own. This is how much he loves you today. Oh, it would break your heart and my heart if we knew how much he loved us. And only the Spirit of God, friends, can make this love real to us. We just can't write out a little motto and stick it on our bumper and drive around and say, Jesus loves you. (laughs) How do you know he loves you? Have you experienced it yourself? Are you conscious of his love right now? Oh, my friend, he loves you. Fall in love with him. And now, will you listen? The bride speaks now and answers. Verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south wind. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. You remember they were there in the upper room? And the Lord Jesus was giving them that wonderful discourse, began in John 13 and goes on actually through 17, but in John 14, he's interrupted again and again and again by one apostle and then another one. And finally, Judas interrupts him. And have you ever noticed what he said? Judas saith unto him, now this is not Iscariot, the other Judas, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, not unto the world? Judas says, this is wonderful to be here. And you are revealing these wonderful truths concerning yourself. Well, what about the world outside? And now the bride here, she's getting the message. She says, oh, north wind. That north wind's cold. And it may cause the bride to get very cold and maybe freeze. But, oh, Awake, O north wind. Why? That this spice, this wonderful fragrance might be blown out to others and they might enjoy it. Let my beloved come into his garden, eat his pleasant fruits, but let the fragrance of this spread out to the world. And he was gathered yonder in the upper room eating the last supper and the Lord's supper the first time. 
And he said, this is to go out. He hadn't forgotten the world. The fragrance is to go out today. And friends, the message should go out.